here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is a critically acclaimed author of romantic comedies for adults and young adults filled with huge South Asian families, delectable food, and most importantly, brown people falling stupidly in love. She lives in Toronto with her husband, two children, and a rabbit named Strawberry. She recently adopted two cats who are now in charge. Isn't that always the way? Her debut, The Chai Factor, was named one of the summer's best books by the Globe and Mail and was praised in Book Riot, Smart Bitches, Trashy Books, Bustle, and more. Her next release, Accidentally Engaged, was listed as a best book of 2021 in Entertainment Weekly, USA Today, NPR, CBC Books, Kobo, and more. Her young adult debut, Tahira in Bloom, 
was recently released and was praised as one of the best rom-coms of the year by USA Today. She's represented by Rachel Brooks at Bookends Literary. It's my pleasure to welcome Farah Heron. Farah, welcome to the show. Hi, Bianca. I'm so glad to be talking to you today. Yeah, I'm super excited to be picking your brain. So for our listeners, we are doing a deep dive into the romance genre today because Farah is the exact perfect person to speak to about all things romance. So to kick us off, Farah, can we discuss the subgenres of romance and why it's so important as a writer to know exactly which genre you fit into? Yeah, so romance is a very, very big umbrella. Most people who are in publishing realize that romance is the biggest genre. It's definitely the most profitable genre in all of publishing. It's a billion-dollar industry, and pretty much any any genre of fiction can be a subgenre of romance. So there's science fiction romance, fantasy romance, romantic suspense. So we're talking like thrillers, and then of course like historicals are massive. They're huge. Contemporary romance is obviously the biggest one, and then rom-coms, which are what I write, which are romances that have that funny underpinning, but also more of a lighthearted story. There's so many different subgenres in traditional publishing, but then if you go into indie publishing and the self-published market, there's even more niche subgenres. And romance readers have their favorites and the ones that they go to all the time. So I think it's incredibly important to really know where you fit in the marketplace because that's where you're going to find your readers. You're going to find readers that want the books like the one you're writing. In a bookstore, romance is all one section. There isn't a separate contemporary romance or there isn't a separate paranormal romance. Unless, of course, you're at a romance-only bookstore, which those exist. But in a regular bookstore, it's all romance. But it's still really important so that you know where to grab your readers and who's going to be finding your book and who's going to be reading it and what agents want books like yours and what publishers want books like yours. So you really should be able to place yourself in one of those subgenres. I was quite surprised a while back to discover that in terms of the subgenres, they can be so specific to publishers that some publishers will state that the meet cute or whatever has to happen by page two. That's how specific it has to be, or that there are very specific romances that deal with women who are pregnant or women in nursing or whatever the case may be is. So that was hugely fascinating to me to find out that it can be so prescriptive in certain elements of romance. Is that right? Yeah, it it can be. I mean, if you look at category romance, so when I say category romance, those are usually Harlequin. Some other publishers do category romance, but of course, Harlequin's the biggest. And those are like Harlequin Special Edition, Harlequin Desire, Harlequin Heartwarming. So those are your shorter, they tend to be between 50 and 60,000 words. And they are very specific as to what the readers expect. When a reader picks up a Harlequin Desire, they expect a certain heat level, but they also expect it to move at a specific pace. And you're right that some of them might the publisher might say, well, we need the meet cute to happen in the first chapter. We need this. And then usually those shorter Harlequin books and other publishers, those shorter books don't have a subplot. It's just the main plot of the two people falling in love. But then what is also called single title, which are have a little bit more leeway. You can do what you want. I'm reading a a friend of mine's book right now, and it's a romance. And I think I'm at page 70-ish and the hero and the heroine haven't even had any major conversation. So it can go all over the place. But then in the indie market, like you said, the pregnancy or the indie market is so super niche. Everybody has the thing that they're looking for. And the writers know that and they find that group of readers that want what they do and they do it well. 
So now, that can be very niche. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, I was surprised when I found out about the dinosaur erotica. So that leads to my next question. Does erotica fall under romance? Is that a subgenre of romance or is that a completely separate genre? Erotica is the separate genre. So it, there is a confusion because there's also something called erotic romance. So, I mean, I, we didn't really define romance, but romance is defined uh, uh, basically needs two things have to happen in a romance. The main story, no matter what the subgenre is, the main story is about two people or more because polyromances exist. But for the most part, it's two people falling in love. And then also in a romance, you absolutely have to end in either happily ever after or happy for now. So there needs to be a committed relationship that the readers buy into at the end. Without those two things, then it's not a romance. So erotic romance is a romance where it's about people falling in love and they end happy at the end, but it's got a much higher heat level. Sex plays a bigger part of it. Meanwhile, erotica doesn't need to be about people falling in love and it doesn't need to end in the happily ever after. Erotica, the plot, like the story arc and the plot is about the sex much more so than about the falling in love. Um, So they are different. A lot of erotica tends to be shorter because you're not doing a lot of character development. It's more about development of the sexual relationship as opposed to the emotional character development. Right. And talking about that happy ever after or happy for now, I've seen uh, readers on Twitter lose their minds when they don't get one of those two things. Now, what happens if you have a novel that is entirely about two people falling in love, that is entirely about the magic of romance, etc., and then there's a tragic ending. So in terms of like a movie, I'm thinking of something like City of Angels, you know, with Meg Ryan, and I'm dating myself here, listeners. This is how old I am. That's the one thing I can think of. So even if the whole book is about two people falling in love, if there's a tragic ending, it's not a romance? No, it's not a romance. It is a love story, and it can be a beautiful, amazing love story, and I have no issue with love stories, but it doesn't fit into the category of romance. Just like you wouldn't have a murder mystery where the murder isn't solved at the end. You wouldn't call that a mystery. It wouldn't be shelved in the mystery section of the bookstore because people expect that that's how it to end. And the same thing with romance. Romance readers, you're right, they get very annoyed when they don't get the happily ever after at the end. They pick up the book. They have no idea where the book is going to go. They have no idea how the author is going to get those two people to that happily ever after at the end. The only thing they know that it is it will happen. And there's that promise that you're giving to a reader. And if you promise them that they're going to get the happily ever ever after the end and then don't give it to them, readers get very annoyed. Yeah, because I think a lot of people come to it like comfort food. It's this thing that life is so full of all of these things and stresses, etc. And the one thing you can depend on is that when you pick up your romance, you're going to get that woman fuzzy at the end. And if you don't get it, then you've robbed the reader of this thing. That's the one reason why they picked it up. Now, a question we have a lot as well, Farah, is a lot of listeners, when they're trying to figure out their genre, when they're pitching, they'll say, oh, I'm not quite sure if it's women's fiction or if it's romance, because there's a lot of romance in it, but then there's also these other things. So we're saying those are the things that qualify a romance. It mostly needs to be two people falling in love, and you need that happy ever after or happy for now. That qualifies a romance. What would you say then is the distinction between that and women's fiction, even if there are romantic elements in women's fiction? That's a great question. There's definitely a kind of a blurry area, especially now. Romantic women's fiction is very 
popular right now. And a lot of what is categorized as romance, readers will say this felt more women's fiction-y. And I think that the main difference, of course, I mean, women's fiction does not have to have the happily ever after. It can, it often does. I think that if you're going to call it romantic women's fiction, then it needs to have that romance happily ever after. But it's really about what's the main focus of the story. Basically, look at the character arc, look at the plot of it, and is the focus on the love story or is the focus on the woman's growth, her growth arc because of her family, her career, her friends, all those things that kind of interact with each other in women's fiction where her growth is based on all these other things that happen. Is the growth because of the love story or is her growth because of all the other family things that are going on or her career or her anything? So it is kind of a blurry area, especially since traditionally a lot of romance has always had the two POVs. It had both main characters would have a POV, but nowadays you're seeing quite a bit where it's only one POV and it's only the woman's POV. All of my books have been only the woman's POV, but they're romance because the focus of the story is definitely on falling in love, but I also make sure that the male character, even though he doesn't have a POV, he does have a story arc and his story arc is also affected by falling in love as opposed to something else affecting it. Wonderful. Well, that makes it very clear. So that's a really clear answer there. So can we talk about how the romance industry has changed in recent years? I remember a few years ago, I think it was like three years ago, there was a lot of stuff happening on Twitter with RWA and romance authors and falling outs and all kinds of arguments and things. So can you talk us through that? What was that mess that started and what has evolved since then? Yeah, that was quite a mess. It was late 2019. I really don't want to go completely into the rabbit hole of how it all came about. Anyone who's really interested in dipping their toes into the romance genre, I do recommend you kind of familiarize yourself with what happened there. But the basic backstory about it, basically, it was racism that basically made RWA implode, which I mean, as a woman of color, I both was shocked and not at all surprised that it ended up being racism that would tear down this enormous organization. RWA was huge. I don't remember how many chapters there were. There were, I think there were at least 100. We have we had one in Toronto and I was unfortunately the president when this happened. So I had to deal with a lot of falling out at our local chapter too. So because of people not wanting to rock the boat, because of maybe some people wanting to hang on to the white supremacy, because of the changes that the industry, not just romance, but publishing had gone where it's much more accepting of diversity. There was a lot of tension and it basically exploded and the organization still does stand, but it has nowhere near the influence it used to have. I don't know how many chapters are still left within RWA, but I know in Toronto, I'm still a member of Toronto Romance Writers. We are no longer affiliated with RWA and most of the other bigger chapters around the world are no longer part of it. So it's instead of having kind of a governing body where we all all belong to the same large organization and had our little chapters. Now we're all just kind of little islands doing our own thing. So there's definitely, there's some pros to that, especially in Canada, because now we don't have to follow this American rules. We can kind of do things Canadian way. As a whole, we do, we have lost a lot of the cohesiveness as a community. And then going right back to the racism, the people who are not accepting of the increase of diversity and people who, I mean, in any walk of life right nowadays, we have to deal with the pushback against the acceptance of diversity and the not even acceptance, but there's so many great things happening right now that people are embracing diverse authors, diverse books. And then there's always going to be pushback against that. So we just have to kind of keep going with it, even though we know that we don't have that backbone behind us anymore. As an author and as a podcast host, I get pitched a lot of books by publicists and publishers who want to get their authors on the show. 
And for me, it's been wonderfully encouraging to see the diversity we've seen coming through, especially in the romance genre. I kind of feel like they're leading the charge right now in terms of diversity. I'm seeing tons of rom-coms that are people of color, that are body positive, et cetera, et cetera. So we're seeing all kinds of things in romance, whether it's mixed race couples, et cetera, et cetera, that I'm not seeing in thrillers or necessarily in other genres. I mean, obviously there's always room for improvement, but are you also seeing that? Yeah, it's actually quite great to look at. I'm just thinking of like the best of lists at the end of the year. And if you look at any of the major, like the EW, NPR, any of the major best of lists, even in Canada, CBC Books, they're quite diverse. And it's so wonderful to see authors of color, people writing body diversity, LGBTQ plus pairings, all of that you're seeing in mainstream romance nowadays. I can go to Walmart and pick up a romance between two women on the shelf in Walmart. I don't even remember there being romance in Walmart until recently. And now there's romance between two women right there on the shelf, which is amazing. But I think as a whole, we do still have a ways to go. As I said, romance is enormous. And it's great to see so much diversity getting media attention and getting attention on Instagram and getting on those end of year lists. But I think overall, most authors of color will admit that our sales are not where our white counterparts are making. We are, by a lot of people, not considered mainstream, considered niche. Those books are for only certain people, not for me. And then the indie market is absolutely enormous. And I think the indie market, again, there's a niche for everything. There's something for everyone. But the real people that reach the top are still white authors writing white characters. Publishers are taking on a lot of fantastic books by authors of color. So I'd love to see more diversity. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move on to structure and plotting for romance. But before I do, for people who want to join, they can't join the local RWA necessarily. Like in Toronto, there's something else. Do they have to be published in the genre to be able to join these organizations? And what benefit is there to joining? I can speak for Toronto Romance Writers because I've been a member for a while now. And I, as I said, I was once the president. Toronto Romance Writers, when I was on the board, we were about one third traditionally published, one third indie published, and one third unpublished. We always had a significant unpublished membership. It's a great, great, great first step if you want to dip your toes into writing romance. I joined literally the week I started writing romance. I started writing romance and then I'm like, who can I talk to about this? So I looked up, I Googled it and I found Toronto Romance Writer because that's the kind of person I am. I'm a joiner. And I I really think that I would not have had a career at all without Toronto Romance Writers. The critique groups, they have mentoring. The monthly meetings are, for the most part, workshops. So it will be either a craft workshop or something more businessy. And the focus is on not just indie authors or not just traditionally published. So there's lots of opportunities for unpublished writers. And it's a great place to find your people, to find people that have the same passion for this genre. And I personally, this is, I might be a bit biased, but I think romance writers are the most accepting writing groups out there. Uh, other writing groups I've joined, I have not felt as welcomed, maybe because I write romance, but romance authors are very, very accepting to welcome you into their fold. So I absolutely do recommend you find a romance group in your area. Most of them are operating mostly online right now. We do our monthly meetings online. So find one in your area so you can kind of be surrounded by it. Yeah, listen, I'd rather join a romance writers group than a thriller writers group because I'd be terrified to eat anything they give me or anything they give me to drink because I'll be scared they're trying to poison me. Right. Very good point. (laughs) They dodgy those thriller writers. 
So let's chat now about, before we discuss structure and plotting in romance, I want to discuss as well things like the Bridgerton effect and which subgenres are dominating now. Because I also recently chatted to Susan Wiggs, who writes sort of women's fiction now, but in the past she was writing more kind of Bridgerton type books. And suddenly these books that were out of print are now back in print again because the publisher's printing them like hotcakes because there's a huge demand for these books that she wrote 20 years ago or whatever. So what is happening there? Yeah, Bridgerton's been quite uh, like a tidal wave of attention to the romance genre that, I mean, romance genre has always been, like I said, it's always been the biggest genre, but by no means has it been the one that's been in the media the most or anything like that. The Bridgerton effect is definitely seeing people looking for historical romances a lot more than they were. I still don't think historical is going to outperform contemporary as the most popular genre. But one of the interesting things that's happening with the Bridgerton effect, where people are looking for television and movies about romance, which is great, but it's bringing new readers to the genre. It's bringing readers who didn't necessarily know much about romance, didn't realize that the HEA was a guarantee when they pick up a book, didn't realize that they can be fun and silly and character-driven and dark histories and didn't realize that all that could happen. So new readers are coming to the genre, not just in historical, but in contemporary and the rom-com space as well. And then, of course, we're getting a lot more film attention. I know a lot of production companies and the streaming services are eating up romance content right now. I think the Bridgerton effect had an effect on the rom-coms that are coming out on Netflix. I feel like there's more. I feel like Netflix has a new one almost every week these days, which is great because you didn't see them as much other than at holiday rom-coms. But then throughout the year, you're getting great ones. So I think that's great. It's kind of brought romance into the mainstream for media. I just saw, I don't remember what the thing was, but a, I think it was Paste Magazine was talking about romance. They don't normally talk about upcoming romance books that are coming up. And that's really neat that things like that hadn't happened before, that we're getting that kind of more attention, more legitimacy in the industry. Yeah. And something with Bridgerton that amazed me is when Bridgerton came out, myself and my husband went away and we have a gay friend who was with us and we could never agree on anything to watch because the two of them wanted to watch these Marvel superhero movies. And I was like, eh, not interested. And I'd want to watch these kind of movies and they'd be, eh, not interested. And yet the three of us devoured Bridgerton, a straight man, a gay man, a woman, and we all agreed that it was freaking amazing. So that to me showed me the power of those kinds of stories. So, okay, structure and plotting for romance. What is your advice to our listeners? Do you have to be a plotter if you're writing romance? Can you be a pantser? How important is it to stick with the conventions and the tropes when you're plotting something out while keeping those action beats? What's your advice? So you can be a pantser. My biggest advice is to understand structure. Like romance is genre fiction and most genre fiction follows structure. It's not the meandering literary fiction where things can go anywhere. Genre fiction tends to hit certain beats. If you're new to romance, I really recommend the book Romancing the Beat. It's the structure book that most romance authors I know use. I don't necessarily think you need to be a plotter, but you do need to understand the structure before you start. So reading a book like Romancing the Beat, Romancing the Beat is a very short plotting book. It's almost a companion to literally any other plotting book. So if you like Save the Cat reads a novel or any major plotting book, you can read that to get a better idea of what plot is and where it's supposed to go. And then read Romancing the Beat, which will basically 
help you interpret all that information according to the romance genre. So understanding what's supposed to happen, where it's supposed to happen. If your two main characters don't meet until the halfway point, then it would be very hard for that story's focus to be mainly on the relationship. So you need to know. So meet cute tends to happen earlier in most romances so that you can develop the relationship. And then of course, the other turning points, the like the one quarter turning point and then the halfway point and then the dark moment or called different things, which is happening around the three quarters. So to understand how to interpret those in romance, I think it's a good idea to understand that so that when you're drafting it, you know that you're hitting these points. If you're at the one quarter point and you haven't hit that turning point, then you know, okay, then this isn't working. Romance readers read a lot. So they have expectations of a certain pace of where the story is supposed to be moving of a certain clip. And so it's important to try and reach those, whether you plot or not. I don't usually plot. I used to be a complete pantser, but at this point in my career, I sell books on proposals. So they want a synopsis before I write the book. So I've kind of had to turn into a plotter. And sometimes it works for me. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I go way off when I start writing the book, but I still make sure I hit the beats where they're supposed to. And then you also asked about tropes. And I think tropes is another thing that you really have to understand what they are in romance. Readers love tropes. Readers love to see those reoccurring kind of story elements or character traits that they're drawn to. So a trope can be then used as like a marketing thing. For example, my book accidentally engaged as a fake relationship. And there are readers that love fake relationship books. So I can market it as a fake relationship book. And I know that readers will grab to it. But it also kind of helps me with the conventions of those fake relationship stories and put my own twist on it and change things to make it suit me. So I'm not just writing the same story, but it gives me kind of like a background. It gives me like a foundation to work with. Amazing, Farah. This has been so incredibly enlightening. Thank you so, so much. We'd love to have you back again because we've like barely scratched the surface and I have tons more questions. So for our listeners, look out for Farah's The Chai Factor, Accidentally Engaged, Tahira in Bloom. We'll put them all on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, if you buy from there, you're supporting an independent bookstore, you're supporting an author, and you're supporting the podcast at the same time. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a Spanish writer, a self-confessed hopeless romantic, and much to Mr. B's dismay, a proud book hoarder. After years of devouring stories and posting, okay fine, yelling about them on her Instagram, she's finally taken the leap and started creating some of her own. While she'd never describe herself as adventurous, having a degree in chemical engineering and being the Monica of her group of friends, me too, I'm also the Monica of my group of friends, this definitely qualifies as the most exciting yet terrifying project she has ever taken on. She's probably biting her nails as you read her book. Heck, she's even probably full on freaking out. But don't mind her, that's just a little of hopefully healthy stage fright. Regardless, she cannot wait to finally share her dream with you, to perhaps gush over happily ever afters together, and who knows, maybe fall a little more in love with love, because isn't that the whole point? It's my pleasure to welcome Elena Armas. Elena, how are you today? Hi, I'm really good, thank you, and thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us. The Spanish love deception has been such an interesting publishing phenomenon that I've been watching for quite a while, and this is why I want to share it with our listeners. So can you take us through it? I want to go through the whole journey from when you started writing this book to where we are today. Phew, okay, so that's, yeah, there's a very long answer for that question, and I'm happy that it's long, you know, because that means that a lot of good things have happened. When I first had the idea for the Spanish Love Deception for this book, I generally started writing it without any kind of purpose. Like, I didn't know what I was going to do with it or if I would ever finish writing that first 
untidious draft or manuscript. After I wrote those two first chapters, then I parked the idea for months and then I revisited and there was a lot of going back and forth with flirting with the idea and it wasn't until I finally finished that manuscript, which by the way was like the first book that I ever wrote back to back. So the first time that I typed those two words, the end... (laughs) It was only then when I decided to go for it and self-publish it. And it was because I was encouraged by a good friend that is also a published author, a self-published author, and she read it and she loved it. And she said, you should really publish it. And that's only when I made the decision to go for it. And well, the rest is history. I would have never imagined that one year after that, I would be having my book sitting in bookstores and book deal for book two and I would be writing full time. So yeah, it was a long journey. Uh, A lot of things happened. So can I ask, why did you immediately out of the gate decide to self-publish? Because most authors will write the first book and then they start the whole tedious process of trying to get an agent. And after getting rejected a ton of times, then they go, okay, I'm just going to self-publish it. But it sounds like you made that decision immediately. Yeah, yeah. And I did. I did. I don't have any reasoning or explanation for that. There's no reason why I didn't want to look for an agent and a book deal right away. As a reader, I was consuming a lot of self-published fiction. And I really made no difference between a self-published book or a traditionally published book. And to me in that moment, maybe the self-publishing route seemed easier because I could also do my own marketing and promotion because I was a book blogger when I self-published this. So, I mean, before I had been a book blogger for two years, so I knew more or less what to do. It didn't seem like I didn't have any resources to need a publisher or an agent to get behind and help out. Not that I'm saying that you don't need them, but back when I took, when I made that decision, I wasn't feeling like I couldn't do it. So I decided to go for that because it seemed somehow something that I could do or that I could try my best to do. Yeah. So did you already have like a big platform then in terms of your followers as a book blogger? So how big was your platform at that point? When I first self-published, I think I had over 80,000 followers on Instagram. I had been blogging for a long time and I had been in influencer programs. So I kind of knew what was being done marketing wise, at least the blogger side of it. I don't know what was behind the scenes on the publishing side. And I know that's a lot of work and I'm sure there's plenty of things that I didn't know back then and that I still don't know, obviously. But I did have some tools as a blogger. And one of them was this platform that I had on Instagram that I used, obviously. (laughs) That's something that we say to all of our writers, not all of them will have a big platform. You know, you Mm -hmm. always need to lean into the things that you have working in your favor. And if you do have a platform, then that's absolutely amazing. So you wrote the book. How long did it take you to write it? I don't really have an answer for that. Unfortunately, everybody keeps asking me that question. And I really hate not having an answer. But because 
I was working full-time when I was writing, so there was a lot of pausing and maybe I would go without touching the manuscript for weeks and then I would have a free weekend and I would get back on it. Or I wrote a lot during lockdown, most of it, during that tedious lockdown that we were... (laughs) Everybody kind of decided to use that time in amazing ways, very different ways. Um, And I, yeah, I took that time to write mostly. Most of us were just stress eating and you used the time very constructively. So that's amazing. So after you'd written it, did you have like other people sort of workshop it with you or critique it? Did you have writing group partners or did you hire like an editor or whatever? Or no, was it a case of you wrote it, you had this writer friend read it and that was it? Yes, mostly it was, I only sent it to this friend, this very good friend that's also a published author, and she gave me a lot of comments that were uh, a life savior for me in that moment, because of course, uh, I mean, I had this constant feeling that I didn't know what I was doing. I was just going with my gut and trusting my instincts. But of course, there's so many things that could escape your control when you're writing. So it was very valuable having someone that had the experience of going through the process, critiquing your work, even if it's terrifying. And even if most of the comments at first are going to be not negative, but constructive. It's a lot to take on, but it was very important. And I I always recommend this when somebody asks me that if they should take on a critique partner or somebody to read it, I think that's key in the whole process of writing a book. And I was lucky enough to have this one person. I never seeked help from anybody else because that was working out. So I was lucky, I feel like. Sometimes maybe you ask someone and that doesn't work. But yeah, I was I was very lucky to have to have her. Wonderful. And then you published it. And then what happened from there? Because it became this huge TikTok sensation. And I know it feels like that happens overnight, but these things never happen overnight. It's like a boulder downhill, it gains momentum. So take us through that from when you published it to when you started to notice these TikTokers were constantly talking about it. Yeah, so you're 100% right. That's something that doesn't happen overnight. So when I published the first two days, I was selling books and I was shocked that I was, but it was mostly traction from me promoting it on my platform that was already built, right? But after that, the sales dropped naturally, which is only natural that that happens. Even if I was ready, of course, I mean, you get a little sad and you're like, "Mm, maybe this book is not good enough or what will happen, the uncertainty of what would or would not happen. A lot of management of expectations (laughs) was taking place in that moment too. And it wasn't until five months later that the whole thing picked up on TikTok. So in between publication day and when everything kind of blew up or started blowing up on TikTok. I was selling books. It wasn't something, you know, that was telling me. It wasn't like a sales number that was telling me, oh, I can quit everything and just dedicate myself to being a full-time author. It wasn't like that. It was just like a good number, in my opinion. It was doing all right. It was encouraging me to keep writing. But then TikTok happened. And I was not on TikTok when that first one TikTok went viral. I wasn't on the platform. I had created an account at some point, but I was not active on the platform because I'm a millennial and I was like, oh, this is not for me. (laughs) 
this is for Gen Z, this is not for me, I will never be good at it. And then this one TikTok went viral and the book made it into the Kindle top 100 on Amazon because I self-published on Amazon and I, I also had it on Kindle Unlimited. So I was like exclusive to Amazon and it got into the top 100 because of this one TikTok. And from that point on, it seemed to start spreading. And it was like at first slowly but steady. And then it got to a point where I really noticed that something was going on here because the book was still in the top 100 of the Kindle store and more people were talking about it and more bloggers were talking about it and more TikToks were being made about it. And that's when I knew that something had happened for sure. That's amazing. And that first TikTok, what was it? Just one person reading an excerpt from the book or talking about the book? What was the first thing that was that catalyst? So that first time that I made it to the top 100 of the Kindle store, it was because of a TikTok from a girl that was, I think, telling a story as if it was her life and narrating the synopsis of the book. So it was, I believe it was a trend and that had happened with some other books that someone would just get in front of the camera and tell the plot of the book pretending that it was something that had happened to them. And then at the end, it was like, if you enjoy this story, you can get this book, is blah, blah, blah. And that seemed to be a very engaging thing for people and they would go and check out the book and buy it. So... <laughs> Yeah. It is amazing. So, I mean, you're getting other people to be doing the advertising for you and you didn't know her. It's not like you asked her to do this or whatever. So it's all for me. What I love is all these little lucky accidents mm -hmm. that happen along the way. Cause you think if that one person hadn't have done that, who knows how things would have gone, but it's wonderful when these things come together to make the magic happen. And then obviously Atria, the publisher noticed all of this happening. So how did they then reach out to you because after that they then traditionally published it so how did that look so when the book started making a lot of noise i started receiving interest from both literary agents and also some traditional publishers so there were a few that got in touch with me and it was everything happened at the same time so i don't really remember the order of the events because a lot happened in a very short period of time but i think that from one week to the next i had an agent and i was already looking at book deals so it was pretty it was very crazy it was a lot to process. That's amazing. It's like the Cinderella story of publishing. Because, you know, for, <laughs> for most authors, it's years and years and years of writing, trying yeah. to find an agent, getting rejected, writing another book, getting rejected, and finding their way to publishing that way, which is why I love these kinds of Cinderella stories, because it shows that not everyone has to suffer through that long haul of that journey to publication. Sometimes magic can absolutely happen. So when Atria then bought the book, did they have an editor edit it then? Or was it a case of this is how the book has been out? 
when you indie published it and therefore that's the way the book's going to sell? What was their approach to it? So the book, when I self-published it, the book had already been professionally edited because I thought that was important. I mean, just it was just copy line edits. It wasn't nothing like um, content-wise. But when Atria picked it up, they also... So it went through the process of editing as well. And what today is in bookstores is a revised version of the self-published one. So story-wise is the same, nothing changed in terms of content, but it has been looked at by the publishers. Right. And how did the cover evolve? Because that's a nice thing when you self-publish, you get to pick the cover. So did you hire a cover designer? How did you go about that? So I was lucky enough that I could put together the cover together with my friend who had experience in creating covers for herself. So we worked on it together. She did the illustrations and then we both worked on it on Photoshop. And I think in this very particular case, I was lucky that I was good at... I mean, I wouldn't call myself a graphic designer. I'm no graphic designer, (laughs) But I'm not bad at self-learning on Photoshop and programs like graphic design programs. And I had help from somebody that had already done it. So I didn't have to hire a cover designer. But for anyone that's listening that is thinking of self-publishing, finding a cover designer is not really hard. You just need to look for somebody that has some covers that you love and find good chemistry. And it's not impossible and it's not extremely expensive. I see it as an investment to spend some money on a cover if you're going to self-publish on a professionally made one. So yeah. And did the cover that the publisher come up with afterwards for the paperback, was that very different to your original cover or quite similar? Um, No, it's the same one. So they wanted to keep the same cover. They said that that was the cover that everyone loved already. So why change it? Everyone was happy with it. And I was very happy to <laughs> to get to keep it. Yeah, it's a lovely cover. I'm very impressed that you did that yourself. I'm like, wow, this is wow. So in terms of just for our listeners who will probably want to go out now and get the book if they haven't already gotten it, could you just give them an overview of what the story is about and the general sort of tropes and conventions you used in the rom-com genre? Sure. So The Spanish Love Deception is a rom-com, it's a romantic comedy, like you said, and it follows Catalina, who is a young Spanish woman that works in an engineering firm in New York City, and she sees herself in the situation to take her work nemesis as her fake date to her sister's wedding in Spain. So there's a little bit of, I I like to call it the wedding date meets the proposal, which are two of my favorite movies. And yeah, so trope-wise, I think I... (laughs) I really went big (laughs) with the tropes for this one. There's fake dating, there's enemies to lovers, there's a workplace because it, it happens between colleagues. There's also like a destination wedding of sorts because they fly from New York to Spain to attend the wedding and all the wedding shenanigans. And there's also this this trope that is very niche, um, that is the one bed trope, because when they're in Spain in the apartment, there's only one room and they have to share the bed. And you know how it goes <laughs> in rom-coms. It's very, 
Yeah, very tropey. Yeah, but I mean, that's any genre. Every single genre has got its tropes. And so long as you're putting an original spin on it, that's what people love. Because people come to rom-coms because they like how kind of predictable they are. They like the formula of them and they like the happy ever afters, etc., etc. And they feel comforted by knowing what's going to happen. So you're expected to be including those tropes, but certainly putting an original kind of spin on them. In terms of the love scenes, etc., it's quite a hot and steamy book. Do you have advice for our listeners who are writing in the genre when it comes to writing that particular thing? Because it never ceases to fascinate me how people who write literary fiction are very disparaging of romance authors. And yet people who write literary fiction cannot write a sex scene to save their lives. It always comes out terrible. So uh, <laughs> what advice do you have people who, who are approaching this? So uh, my first advice would be, so before start writing it or before deciding if, if your book is going to be open door or closed door, I feel like you should read a little bit of both and decide what you like as a reader, because that's going to show on what you write. So if you as a reader lean towards clean romance or closed-door romance, then I feel like you shouldn't really try to do or to write a steamy scene or a sex scene or you shouldn't even, maybe, I mean, this is just my opinion, of course, but it's not going to come out naturally and organically for you to write something like that because you're not enjoying reading it. But if you're, you know, if you're that kind of reader that doesn't, not that doesn't mind, but that needs the steam and the spice in a romance book and values that as much as the emotion and the sentiment and anything and everything, then you should totally go for it. And once you make that decision, my advice, and this is probably because I'm a slow burned writer and a slow burn lover, and you know, that's really my thing as a reader as well. I 100% recommend that you don't try to rush into writing the sex scene and that you get there with the story. So that first draft, I wouldn't try to write a sex scene out of order. I would just get there with the characters. And once you're getting there with them and with the flow of the story and with the pace and everything, and you're there with them, then that should be your first attempt or try at writing it. And do you think that's something you need to get other people to kind of read to see if you got that right? Like when you had your friend reading your work mm -hmm. in terms of was she able to say you nailed the love scenes, the sex scenes, these were great. Because I always feel like that's the kind of stuff, if you're not sure you're getting it right, that's the stuff you should be getting feedback on. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yes, yes. For sure, have someone that is going to be 100% honest with you and tell you if it works or if it doesn't work. And besides having a critique partner that gives you advice or their thoughts on that early on, then you should... Or at least I recommend having a couple, if you can't, maybe just one better reader, someone that has never heard of the story or someone that you haven't talked to about all the details to know how the story works and how the pacing works and how, of course, how the chemistry between the characters in the bathroom and outside the bathroom works. That's also vital. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Get opinions and get thoughts. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this is something I've said before on the podcast. You can only read something for the first time once. So people in your writing groups and your critique groups, they're great to be early readers. But after you're done, you need to get whole fresh eyes on the work. Because like Elena is saying, if you've been talking to people about it and they know how the story goes, they have insider information, which means they're accessing information that is not just coming from the book itself. So that's very true. And people on TikTok keep calling Aaron like their book boyfriend. So you've really created a love interest that women in general fall in love with. Can you speak to your characterization of him? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question that I unfortunately don't have <laughs> a specific answer to. I think because when I was writing this book, I never imagined that I would continue writing, if I'm being completely honest, as much as I thought or somewhere, like some part of me thought, oh, it would be great to write full time. I never thought that that was something that I could do. So when I created Aaron Blackford, <laughs> I thought, hey, I'm going to make him as perfect as I can. And he's not going to have any flaw. And he's going to be like a real character. So he's not going to be a Disney prince because he has to have, he's going to have his things, but he's really going to be as perfect as I can manage to make him. And apparently I did a good job. <laughs> yeah, look, you may have written your fantasy man, but it certainly has resonated with all of your readers as well. So excellent, excellent job on that. Elena, it's been so wonderful chatting with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to share this with us. For our listeners, we're going to be putting the Spanish Love Deception on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you order through there, you'll be supporting the author, you're supporting the podcast, and even better, you're supporting an independent bookstore. So look out for that. And Elena, we wish you much luck with the second book. Thank you so much. It was great being here chatting to you. And I hope I get to come back and talk again. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. 
I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.